Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice-monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. And I am super fired up this week for a bunch of reasons, most of which are related to the fact that my in-laws are not here anymore, but some of which... (laughs) are related to the fact that we're here with Megan Gunn. Megan, how are you today? I'm good, Stuart. How are you? Man, I'm good. Actually, the real reason I'm excited is because spring is coming. I mean, it's already here. We had a beautiful week of spring, if you remember. Uh, and then we and had then it snowed, snowed <laughs> twice last week, <laughs> which uh, it's really not supposed to do in late April. Like, we're not supposed no. to celebrate Earth Day by, you know, like sledding. <laughs> but uh, there we are. Anyway, but so with spring, uh, uh, one of my favorite things that happens is the uh, cicadas emerge coming up later in the spring. And and I've always been obsessed with these things because they look like aliens, like little tiny aliens. And they, they come out of the ground and they're really creepy, like exceptionally creepy. Anyway, uh, we'll get into all this, but so we're going to talk about cicadas with uh, someone who absolutely uh, loves cicadas and knows a ton about them. And uh, so it's not uh, the great lakesiest topic, but it's environmental, it's relevant, so I thought we'd do it. But first, Megan, I have an embarrassing uh, uh, thing to admit to. I don't know if you've listened to our last episode. I will not admit to whether or not I listened to the last episode. Fair enough. <laughs> I will not admit to it either. But it, it turns out at some point the depths of the Great Lakes came up and I very confidently in front of not one but two people stated that Lake Michigan was the deepest of the Great Lakes. And while it turns out actually Lake Michigan is not the deepest of the Great Lakes, but that takes us to this week's Great Lake factoid. Nope. That takes us to this week's Great Lakes factoid. It's about multiple lakes. <laughs> it's a Great Lakes factoid. A Great Lakes factoid. It's a great factoid about the Great Lakes. Cha. So, Megan, it turns out Lake Michigan is not the deepest Great Lake. If you're going by maximum depth, uh, the deepest or the Great Lakes in order are uh, Superior, Michigan, Huron, Ontario, Erie. Or, as I now remember it, smelly men helped obese Elvis. Superior, <laughs> Michigan, Huron, Ontario, and Erie are the Great Lakes in order of depth. And that is this week's Great Lake Factoid. I guess second to top is not too bad. At least it wasn't like the last one and you said it was a deepest. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't Erie. No depth at all to Erie. Very shallow lake. Anyway, yeah. So uh, who knows? Maybe I'll remember next time. Uh, maybe I won't. Uh, you know, I've lived here for like three and a half years. I probably should know the depths of the Great Lakes at this point. Uh, but I'm doing that so we don't have to have a whole episode on it. So now we're just going to do that <laughs> instead. Uh, we're going to have an episode on cicadas. And this is like a super fun year for cicadas. So I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. Um, but let's actually just jump straight into our guest, uh, I said we're going to do transition music, but I lied. We're just going straight to the guest. Uh, <laughs> our guest, I'm just so excited. I forget the music. We're good. Our guest this week is Dr. Jessica Ware. And uh, Jessica is the Associate Curator of Odonata and Non-Holometabolist Minor Orders. Uh, she's a Principal Investigator of the Sackler Institute for Comparative Genomics, Assistant, no, excuse me, Associate Professor of the Richard Gilder Graduate School, all at the American Museum of Natural History. Jessica, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. 
I didn't say they weren't cool. I said they were creepy. Um, yeah, but so Jessica is a is a, in addition to being a I guess this would be an entomologist. She's also a cicada nut in the good way. Uh, uh, she's a fanatic about cicadas. So we're going to get there. But Jessica, before we do, hold on. I can't even get through your title. So uh, you're the associate curator of Odonata and non holometabolous minor orders. So Odonata, that's like um, dragonflies, right? Yeah, that's my specialty, actually, dragonflies and damselflies. I also work on Bladodia, which are termites and cockroaches. And both of those groups are members of this large assemblage called non-holometabola. And they're called that because they're, like, not something. So the holometabola are the insects that have complete metamorphosis. And if you've ever read, like, The Hungry Caterpillar, there's an egg and then a caterpillar and then a pupa and then a beautiful butterfly. That's whole metabolist life, right? Where you have a complete reorganization of the body parts uh, between the, the larval stage and the adult stage. But the non-whole metabolist insects don't do that. So um, that includes things like praying mantises, dragonflies, mayflies, stoneflies, uh, grasshoppers, crickets. I mean, they're all non-whole metabolists because they don't have this, this larval pupa adult stage. It just goes egg, nymph. The nymph is, it often looks just like a smaller version of the adult. And it just molts until it's slightly larger. And then it's the adult size. Interesting. So uh, moving into cicadas then, they do undergo a transformation. Are they non-holometabolists in the way they do it too? I would guess so, if that's kind of your, your area of expertise. Yeah, they're in the order Hemiptera. Um, and all of the Hemiptera are non-holometabolist insects. So they're, they're true bugs. They're bugs. And um, they have a nymph that's underground um, that looks different from the adults. Uh, because it has this other life space, right? Because it's under, underground. What are they doing while they're underground? Well, for both the annual cicadas and the periodical ones, they're living and being, right? So they're alive and they're, they're drinking xylem from the roots of, of trees. Um, and they are molting. They go through, for periodical cicadas, I think they go through five different molts into adulthood, building up... Uh, tissue and molting and growing and then emerging as an adult. That's very cool. Okay. So, so they go through the nymph stage is basically entirely underground, right? And then they emerge. Is that kind of how that works? Yeah. For periodical cicadas, then they're developing um, in the kind of soil and dirt around the roots of trees, which is where it's the primary food source. They're, they're imbibing, they're drinking xylem. Um, and then uh, when they go to emerge, they actually have like small spines on their, their forelegs. And you can kind of see them sometimes, the exuvia, the shed skin, you know, still stuck in place, you know, attached to the bark. Um, and it's neat because you can actually see sometimes even like when insects shed uh, their skin, then they, they're, they're, the lining of their organs are kind of like ripped out. So sometimes you can see these little white trails sticking out of the exuvia, that's and that's their trachea. No, it's cool. It's the coolest thing ever. Do you leave your lung lining around? I don't think you do. It's <laughs> a really good point. I, that might be why I'm not cool. I thought it was, you know, other reasons, but, but uh, yeah. So you, you mentioned periodic cicadas, right? Those are ones that come out every, you hear about this every 17 years or however many years. Like, uh, first of all, are all cicadas that way? Or are there some that are just always hanging out? Um, and then secondly, like what, what determines how long they stay under when they come back? So there are annual cicadas that emerge every year um, and they don't get the, the same press. I mean, even though they have an interesting life story too, males are calling to try and signal to females, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
But it's the periodical ones, I think, that capture people's attention because every 13 years or every 17 years, then there's this kind of mass emergence. Um, the cues for that emergence usually has to do with temperature. Uh, so nymphs that are in their, their final instar, um, when the soil reaches uh, 64 degrees Fahrenheit, um, then there's a cue for them that signals them to emerge. Um, and usually in these, in these large numbers, you know, trillions of insects or whatever the numbers are, you're shoveling them up off of your driveway. Um, and so then that's, I think that's just so spectacular that people talk about them more, uh, even though there are, you know, there are many other species of cicada that are annual that are, that are out kind of every year. I have a silly question. So the ones that come out every 13 or 17 years, do they just have a really long instar phase or are these, are these ones like they're developing over and over and then they just all appear when that, the temperature is right? So the ones that are underground uh, for 13 or 17 years, they, they have five instars, but I think it's like the length of time period of each of those instars is longer, obviously, than what would be for an annual cicada. So it's a long time to be underground. Yeah, it is a long time. Can they see under there? Like, I, I mean, they have these beady, gross eyes. Like, do they, <laughs> when they're underground, they don't use those, I guess, right? Are those part of that? Or do they not come out till they're an adult? I think that the there's not that much known about the nymphal vision. Like, I don't know that anyone's ever looked at often pigments or things like that, for example, um, which is often the pigment that we look at for insects for vision and, and their ability to see color. I think that what largely is understood is that while they're underground uh, consuming the xylem, they're just basically in this little excavation bathed in their own liquidy, sugary feces. <laughs> and they just are, you know, having these, these biochemical cascades, these hormonal cascades that lead them to molt at these, you know, regimented times um, until it, until either 13 or 17 years have passed. Because there are stragglers that come out early. Uh, and those are, so it's usually like roughly 13 or 17 years with these kind of uh, false, false emergencies that come out sometimes a little bit earlier. So I, I feel like even recently that there was like a 17 year emergence. So does, I feel like I have so many questions. Is there a, like a time period, like, is it every 17 years we wait for another emergence or is it like every few years we have a 17 year emergence, like hundred year floods, hundred year floods don't wait until every hundred years to, we don't get, it just happens when it happens, especially more so recently. Well, there's 12 broods that are 17 years um, on 17 year cycles and three broods that are on 13 year cycles. And so, and they're not all starting at the same time point. So pretty much every year or almost every year, you can go somewhere on the Eastern part of the United States and see a brood emergence. I think wow. what people are excited about this particular brood emergence that's happening this year is because this is a particularly large one. So some of the broods are really large and some of the broods are less large. And this brood, which comprises three different species, is like a really large one. It's one of the largest. So it's going to be loud and like very, very noticeable. How many species of cicada are there? Uh, I think there's over 3,000 species wow. of cicada, including the, for, uh, they're mostly annual cicadas. There's far, 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 far fewer species of, of periodical cicadas. So, so, and we happen to have three coming out now. And this is, if I'm not mistaken, you're going to make me sad here, I think. Because um, <laughs> uh, you said that there are 12 of them. They're identified by, by numbers. Is that right? So this is, the famous one is, is not going to be pronounced brood X. 
It's going to be pronounced Brute 10, isn't it? Yeah, the Roman numeral. Yeah, I was so excited. I saw Brute X and I was like, yes, it's the <laughs> Brute. You know, like, uh, but, but so this is Brute 10. And so this is like one of the notably loud ones that's emerging in a lot of places, but not everywhere, I guess, is my understanding. Is that right? It's kind of a patchy distribution. Yeah, I mean, many of the many of the broods are kind of patchy in their distribution, even in their local region. Like it's going to be coming out in New Jersey, but it's kind of patchy where it is in New Jersey. Uh, but Brute 10 has a pretty wide range because it goes, you know, as far south as, um, you know, Knoxville, like eastern Tennessee, uh, you know, West Virginia, Virginia, but then, you know, up to Indiana, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Um, so it's going to be a, across this kind of swath uh, with concentrations in areas like Princeton, which is near where I live, uh, Washington, D.C. Like there's some parts that will be very dense, we imagine, in terms of numbers and others that will be a little bit more straggly. And if you look online, and we'll put a, a link to it in the show notes, you can get like some maps of the distribution. I think we should get Brew 10 here in West Lafayette this year, which is Ooh. why I got fascinated by this whole deal, um, because I hate sleep, apparently. But uh, <laughs> is it because there are just so many of them that this is a louder brew? Is there something about the specific species of cicada uh, that makes them louder? I think that part of it is sheer numbers. Sheer numbers lead to the volume. Um, but these these particular three species are known to call at you know 100 decibels or so. So that's that's pretty loud. That's pretty loud. Um, and it's you know thank thank you evolution, right? Hundreds of millions of years, right? Of 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 evolution has led this this organ, this male um, organ, uh, to be able to allow them to make really long loud calls. And females listen to the song, uh, the kind of rhythm and pattern tells you something about the species that's calling them. Um, the kind of volume and duration tells us something about the quality of male for sexual selection to act on. Now, I want to get into that, but but hold on. You said 100 decibels up to, I assume that's, you know, a peak, but that's like, that's like motorcycle loud, I think. Yeah, jackhammers, rock concert. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew cicadas are hazardous to your hearing, at least potentially. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So they're mating, so they're looking for mates. Um, that's what the, the sound is that we're going to be hearing. I hope the sound is not them actually mating. That would... Well, <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a different podcast, but um... yeah, that's the sound of them, like of, of males trying to attract females, and females make a noise too, sort of. It's not really a noise; it's like a rustling sound where she will kind of like rub her wings um, against each other and make sort of a rustling sound. But that loud, that noise, that's male. <laughs> I see. And so is it the kind of thing, is it uh, like uh, the louder the, the, you know, the noise, the more attractive the male is, or is it, we don't know. Yeah, the volume, I mean, females are listening. So it's energetically expensive to make a loud, long noise, especially in the warmest parts of the day. Um, So presumably those are some cues, you know, depending on what hypothesis you believe it. Maybe it's the sexy son's hypothesis where it makes it so that her sons will also be able to make that loud call and be chosen. Like there's lots of different ways you could kind of phrase it. But yeah, it's the that's the strategy, presumably. The hypotheses in your field are a lot cooler than the hypotheses in my field, I have to say. You don't have a sexy, uh, sexy lake, sexy sun hypothesis? No, I, well, I do now. <laughs> are they are they eating anything when they're above ground to re-energize themselves? Or is it just everything that they've stored for the last 17 years that they're using? Yeah, it's what they've stored. Because primarily their, their, their goal as the adult stage is um, to find a mate, to lay the eggs, and then it's death. And it's not very long, right? Is it is each, like once they emerge, it's, is it a few weeks? Yeah, it's a really short period of time. And then the females will make these little slits in the um, kind of twigs of, of the small branches of trees. And she'll lay eggs. And you can sometimes even see them. They're like little over-position scars. 
and then those eggs will hatch, and then the nymphs will kind of drop to the soil and then burrow under the ground. Oh, that's interesting. So how do they make the slits? Do they have, is it like teeth or do they have, you know, a little razor blade they carry? What's the deal? Well, yeah. I mean, like a lot of insects actually have their own personal sort of razor blade in their genitals, which is their opopositor, their egg laying apparatus. And it's used to make slits or in dragonflies that lay their eggs in, in plants, for example, they also cut a little whole plant material. Um, it's a pretty useful tool and it's been modified a bunch of times, including in things like, you know, bee dance and lots hmm. of singers. They're just a modified over positive. So uh, behind the curtains here for you, Jessica, and for our listeners, what we do is like, um, we give our shows a title based on, you know, something the guest says. Uh, and we like the title to be evocative. Uh, <laughs> and it's going to be hard to choose. Like so far, what I've written down is eating their own liquidy, sugary feces. And tomorrow's <laughs> usually get hot. Uh, under the collar or uh, razor blade in their genitals. So it's. <laughs> Those are all winning. <laughs> yeah, they're all they're all winners there. That's really good. So you mentioned temperature as a driver. That actually makes me concerned that I think about it. Is there is there a climate issue here? So, I mean, like this spring, for example, we had a, a really warm couple of weeks and now it's cold again. But, you know, the, like overall, things are getting warmer. Uh, so is, is there a climate concern with cicadas in terms of their emergence timing and breeding patterns and things like that? Or, or do we not know? Yeah, indeed, there is some concern. And in fact, so Chris Simon is a researcher at University of Connecticut, and she re- just wrote a piece this spring, actually, that was really terrific, specifically talking about that and about how, um, you know, the prediction is that broods, the timing will will um, kind of be off as, as temperatures uh, get warmer uh, for longer periods of time and earlier in the season. Um, and there's some even suggestion that you know, people have made that maybe because 13-year cicadas tend to be further south and 17-year cicadas tend to be further north. And so it's possible that around 500,000 years ago, based on Chris Simon's work, um, that when periodical cicadas first kind of diversified, that, you know, everything was 17. And then with, you know, warmer temperatures, things uh, are now, or in in warmer temperatures, things move to a 13-year. Perhaps, you know, Chris surmises maybe there'll be a nine-year cicada or something like that. Um, so I think the number, the this is definitely impacted by by temperature. And we could imagine in a future warmer world that we might have different different cycles uh, for these broods. So would that just mean more cicadas then and not... Like, it, it doesn't sound like it's going to kill them. All right. Maybe you're excited about this, Jessica. Maybe you're right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the strategy, the, the thing that's tricky is that Part of the strategy that they're using is a satiation strategy, where by emerging in such huge, you know, numbers of individuals, um, you know, presumably birds and, you know, your average cat or dog take out quite a few of them, but hopefully you make it pass on your genes to the next generation. And with just stragglers here and there, um, you know, you're more vulnerable and you're more uh, visible to predators. So, um, you know, there's a, there should be selection. If, you know, presumably this satiation strategy continues um, as their main mode of, of protection against predation. There should be selection on the timing to be, you know, pretty tight, so they all still come out at the same time. Uh, but it's possible that that can be totally disrupted uh, by climate stuff. Maybe not, but but right. It's, oh, geez. Well, there were there were some of Route 10 that emerged a couple of years early, um, a couple of years ago, uh, and they were, you know, picked off quickly by birds and, and what have you. Yeah, we link a lot of times on our work Slack to this the, the picture of like the the million little fish shaped like a big fish eating someone and it says organize and I, I won't get into the politics of that image, but it's the same idea, right? <laughs> it's that um yeah, interesting. 
Okay. So, so Brood 10, Brood X, call it what you want. Uh, coming out soon. Uh, maybe by the time you hear this, um, May 3rd, maybe, maybe a few weeks after that. And then it will be here and go away and there'll be more broods. But, but, uh, so a lot of cool things about cicadas you've taught us, including their entrails strewn about the trees, <laughs> the razor blade sex organs, and, uh, you know, the, the liquidy sugary feces part. So that's all good. But are there any other cool, uh, cicada factoids that you want to kind of tell us about? Well, I mean, one thing that I always think is kind of interesting about, about periodical cicadas, I'm from Canada, I'm from Ontario, uh, which is why I knew that Lake Superior was the deepest lake, by the way. BT Dumb, <laughs> I would have won that, that quiz contest. Um, but no, I mean, I didn't really hear about them. And then when I moved to the United States, um, it's like this thing on the Eastern seaboard. Uh, and so I wondered for a while, you know, how come I never learned about this? And maybe it's just not commonly known. No, it was just I, I'm a dummy and I didn't learn about it. So when you look at the literature, people have been talking about these periodical cicadas for a very long time. For as long as there have been European colonists, people have been writing in their notes. But, you know, First Nations people that lived in the eastern parts of the United States also had, you know, separate names for annual and periodical cicadas and routinely ate cicadas. So I just think it's kind of, I like the idea of thinking that just as we're kind of excited about Brood 10 coming out now, people have ever been excited about Brood 10 and Brood 9. They didn't have it, maybe didn't call them those Roman numerals, but they were excited about them coming because they're a source of food and, um, you know, a signal of, you know, it's a way to keep time, I suppose, 17 years have passed. I hadn't thought about them being a food source to, well, birds, yeah, but I, it makes sense that humans would have eaten them too if, I mean, they're there. Yeah, I'm going to eat some for sure. That was actually my next question is, have you? It sounds like not yet. Well, I've eaten cicadas before, but I've not done like a proper cook-up of them. So this year, uh, with a colleague who's an entomophagy kind of cooking expert, I think we're going to try and cook um, some different uh, life stages. Joseph Yoon from Brooklyn Bugs. We're going to really, you know, do a proper cook-up and really eat them right. Uh, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, you know, a human pursuit. I'm sure my dogs and cats are going to eat them too. I mean, I mean, why wouldn't? That's a perfectly good food source there. So, what is a proper cook up, if you don't mind my asking? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I want it seasoned. I want it, you know, fricasseed or something. Give it a little heat to it. Envisioning hush puppies, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think I don't want. I mean, I've eaten. You know, I've tasted. Uh, I wouldn't say you really eat them, but I've tasted dragonfly wings before, and they're very crunchy. Um, <laughs> so, I, I'm going to take the wings off, I think, and just really go for the body. Well, that's actually fascinating, all the stuff that you're telling us about cicadas, about Brood 10, about their life cycle and all that. But but Jessica, that's actually not why we invited you here on Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week. Uh, the reason we invite you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is to ask you these two questions, the first of which I am now scared to ask you. <laughs> uh, and the, the first one is this. If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which would you choose? I would always choose sandwich because I don't have a sweet tooth. Uh, so I'm team savory for sure. So I would go with a delicious sandwich, a Dagwood sandwich anytime. A Dagwood sandwich anytime. And I forgot to ask um, where you're located. I'm in New Jersey, uh, in the part of New Jersey that may or may not exist called Central New Jersey that people debate about all the time uh, in a <laughs> town that's near near Princeton. It's a town called Cranberry. Famous because in the Orson Welles broadcast of War of the Worlds, uh, this was the first town that the aliens annihilated was Cranberry, New Jersey. <laughs> and there's a plaque. There's a plaque in our town for it. 
So there you go. That's fun. So there you go. All right. Well, next time I'm in central New Jersey in Cranberry, which may be near where my mother grew up. I will Google that and figure it out. Anyway, next time I'm in Cranberry, New Jersey, where can I go to get a really great sandwich? Well, so this is, <laughs> well, here you go, Crocodile. I'm going to advertise you. This is, is a little deli called Crocodile, uh, which I was really unconvinced of because uh, it's unassuming in the strip mall, uh, kind of in, in right five minutes from my house. Um, but it's actually delicious, and uh, everybody that goes there raves about it, and everybody talks about crocodile. So they have delicious sandwiches, vegetarian, non-vegetarian. It's delicious. Awesome. And, yes, I can confirm that Cranberry, New Jersey, is near my mother's uh, birthplace of Westfield, New Jersey. Oh, yeah. In fact, I'm sure the last time I went to the American Museum of Natural History was um, visiting my grandmother in Westfield, but it would have been in the 90s at this point, I think. So. <laughs> nice. You have to come back and visit. <laughs> I have a related sandwich question. Would you eat a cicada sandwich? I would. I would eat any insects, probably, because they're so high in protein. There's no fat. Yeah, the media is always trying to get us to eat insects. I'm, I'm, I'm not in there. <laughs> but it's the wave of the future. The wave of the future. Yeah. Well, I'm not. I'm <laughs> In this way, I'm happy to be completely unprogressive i suppose <laughs> thomas our, our director brought me a like a cricket candy bar uh you know it's like chocolate with a bunch of cricket meal in it and hold on my daughter taught me how i'm supposed to say this it was not to my taste <laughs> <laughs> my son says i didn't care for it that's what my son says i didn't i didn't care for it how would you make right now if I, i'm gonna go out and catch a couple of these brew tenors and make a sandwich what should i do like what should what do you think would go on a cicada sandwich a sandwich? <laughs> Well, my colleague, Dean Pitsky, <laughs> says that the periodical ones, uh, well, cicadas in general, taste very much like asparagus. You can see it tastes very green because they're always just feeding on xylem. So maybe you could use it almost like a lettuce, you know? Like, so I would, I'd say I'm picturing a tuna or egg salad with some of this as kind of your lettuce, your crunch, your crunch in the, in the thing that would give it a bit of green taste. Yeah, so they're naturally crunchy. I wouldn't have to fry it or roast it or anything as far as you know. Well, I like to cook. I mean, I have eaten insects before, different kinds of insects, and I always like to give them a cook just because insects, like anything else, can have, you know, trematodes or I just want to give them a little a little heat before you I... Only, you don't want bugs in your bugs, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just want to give them a little heat and then pop them on my sandwich. And so the second question is is this, and, and oh, you can look your link in the show notes and we'll have Crocodile linked up there and I'll, I'll definitely check it out. Uh, so you're a museum curator and an entomologist. And what is it that makes you good at that job? Like, what are some key skills for what you do? Um, well, I think you have to be curious. So we have 23 million specimens of insects in our collection. Um, and you could, if you weren't a curious person, then those specimens are just sitting there, right? So you have to be kind of a curious person. And, uh, you know, part of, a big part of the job is doing research and asking questions and testing hypotheses about the evolutionary history of particular groups. Um, and so being a museum curator, having all those specimens there, if you're creative and you like asking you know, questions and making discoveries, it is, it's a pretty great job. Well, Dr. Jessica Ware, Associate Curator of Odonata Non-Holometabolist Minor Orders uh, and Associate Professor of the Richard Gilder Graduate School at the American Museum of Natural History. Where can people go to find out more about your work? Uh, you could look on uh, my website, jessicalwarelab.com, or you could find me on social media. I'm on Twitter at jessicalwarelab, um, and also on Instagram, jessicaleeware42, L-E-E, wear42. I don't know why 42, but I, 
just always seem to add that to my handles. So if you want dragonfly photos uh, on Instagram and research talk uh, on Twitter. I do. I definitely do. Uh, great. Well, Jessica Ware, thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Thanks for having me. Stuart, I don't think I've ever seen you make so many faces during an episode. But I was feeling the same way. Yeah. Well, I mean, bugs are just terrifying. And these things are, I mean, have you seen them when they crawl out of the ground, like right before, you know, before they finish morphing or whatever? Uh, They're just terrifying. No, that that was one of the things that I was thinking about. I I remember hearing them growing up and I remember seeing their exoskeletons on trees. And I had one on the trash can a few years ago, yeah. but I've never seen them emerge. Oh, it's like little aliens. It's like they're from another world. <laughs> I, yeah. Well, I'll see about, I never did grow it up. We had them in New Orleans. I know. Cause we used to see the shells like on trees. I should ask. Mm-hmm. I don't know what ones are down there. They must be the 13 year ones or whatever. Yeah. But about three a year, I'll see here just walking across the sidewalk and they creep really? and they really do. They look like the bad guys in doom or some video. Not that I play video games, but I think that's a video game where they had like alien bad guys. Anyway, I'll assume it is, and that's what they look like. And, uh, yeah, it's, like, legit terrifying because they do look like alien creatures that have invaded, and you just wonder what their powers are, right? And, you know, Jessica played it cool, but mm-hmm. you do wonder what their powers are. So, Megan, where can people go to find out more about the work that you do? Oh, no. Hold on. Before you get there, everybody look down right now at your podcast player, and you should hopefully maybe see our brand new artwork. That we have oh, done. it's so nice. It is so nice. Our friend and designer, Joel Davenport, uh, worked with us to, to get that done. And it's super fun. It sticks out. It's fun. It's uh, There's a couple little things, if you dig deep, you can find that are buried, little Easter eggs in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's appropriately kind of overwrought for the TV show, you know, for this show. It's like just a bunch of stuff <laughs> in there. It's like jam yep. it all in there and work it out in the end. Yep. Yeah. I so, really enjoyed looking for the Easter eggs. Yes. So thank you, Joel, for that. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks to everybody. Uh, or yeah, thank you, Joel, for that. That's all I would say. So now, Megan. Where can people go to find out more about the work that you're doing? People can find me on Instagram at the Familiar Faces Project, and then on Twitter at underscore TFFP. There you go, and you can find out more about uh, the work that we do at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant at iicgrant.org or on many social medias at i l i n c grant. And uh, with that, thank you for listening, everybody. Stay safe out there. The spring is coming. Get vaccinated. Go get vaccinated. Have you been vaccinated? Yes. I yesterday, today, today's Monday. Today was my last of my second shot, like waiting period. Oh, oh, oh. So this is like day so four. I'm done. You. Yeah. Wednesday is for me. And then I'll be, you know, like licking flagpoles and I don't even know what else, but I'll be out there. <laughs> Go do it. Just go do it. It's not hard. I mean, it. you know, you get a little dead arm, but you know what? You don't get COVID. So, COVID. Yeah. <laughs> Take a little dead arm. No big deal. Take a day off work. Use it as an excuse. It's all good. Yeah. Anyway, in between now and then, go get vaccinated if you haven't been. And uh, thanks for listening. Keep grating those lakes. Beep, 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 beep.